Okay, hello friends. We're back. It's Chapo. Me, Matt, and Felix. Thursday, November 18th. Boys, how's it going? Pretty good. Um, I like, I know we talked about it like last time, but it, it, it's, I think it's like more dramatic now. The the Barney thing becoming real. So what, there, there's, a, there's a documentary about Barney coming out? Well, there's a documentary about Barney, but I more mean like that like I saw something today where CPAC was like, fuck Big Bird and Elmo and Bert and Ernie <laughs> for like telling you to get the vaccine. And then the first reply I saw was like an adult man wearing a suit in his Abbey with his full name. Like it looks like a LinkedIn profile picture. And he went... Oh, I wonder why Bert and Ernie were explicitly told not to show up when they could have selected Elmo, Oscar, or the Cookie Monster. What is it about Bert and Ernie that they were singled out? What could it possibly be? <laughs> like, he's accusing CPAC of homophobia because on their thing, they said that uh, Bert and Ernie and Big Bird are not invited. I mean, there's something to it, right? Because Big Bird, obviously, he's banned for being pro-vax. But I don't know. Have have uh, Bert and Ernie come out on... And said anything yeah. about the back vaccine? I don't think they have. By the way, uh, Bert and Ernie will be attending a CPAC after party with Matt Schlapp. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and Oscar the Grouch, though, has just gotten a new job working for Jerry Falwell Jr. as his wife's uh, garbage instructor. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I, I just, I like that, um, that, pe- that uh, the new thing is to earnestly debate Sesame Street. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, this is, okay, this is... Um, Matt Schlapp three days ago. What? Oh, what race is Ernie? What race is Ernie? Is Bert? You you are insane, PBS, and we should stop funding you. Is this Sesame Street? Presumably typing with one hand. (laughs) Hey, Bert, Ernie, uh, are are they? What race are they? Uh, Are are they cut, uncut? (laughs) You're so hot. Are you horny? Um, Cool. (laughs) I must buy condom. do you remember Hambug Bubker from To Catch a Predator? <laughs> Wait, no, what's that? This is the best predator on To Catch a Predator. There's a guy named Hambubger. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember him for the all caps message. I must buy condom. <laughs> just always think about that when I see horny DMs. Think about Hambubger. But I like how... I'm not really going to say insane because I think like everyone, everyone wants to be insane now. Like if you're a zoomer, you say you're chaotic. And if you're like older, you're like, Oh, I'm, you know, schizo. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm unhinged. I'm unstable. No, everyone's just, um, uh, you know, word word begins with an R. You can't, can no longer say on Twitter. Uh, you're that pilt. Everyone is though. It, it's not a left or right or a center thing. It's just, that's what it is to be an American now. You just you argue about Sesame Street and pizza, yep, and ice cream. It's just that before we started recording, Felix, you said that all all America is is a little league team that lost. And I, yeah, I, I, I God, that's because it's just like you may have lost the game, but win or lose, you're still having Sunny D with friends. Yeah, it's sad that you lost the game, and the game could be anything. It can be like deindustrialization. It, it could be. The, the Volcker rate height, that's when you could have lost the game. It could be the war on terror, anything. But, you know, you you still you still get to eat that garbage. You still get to eat that um, export-focused, uh, super mass-produced food that we started to make more of after NAFTA. Well, uh, the first thing I'd like to bring up today is 
Did you guys see the footage of Joe Biden tooling around in the electric Hummer? He was zipping. He was screwed. He, he put the pedal to the damn metal. And now, okay, like I, I just want to talk about this because, uh, you know, it's it's become it's become trendy to you know question the mental acuity of President Joseph Robinette Biden, and you know some people are speculating, you know, should we let someone of his age drive a car, even for you know even even for sort of a show purposes and i gotta say i trust joe biden behind the wheel more than any other american if there is one thing this guy is still good at that there's a skill that has not diminished in the slightest it's a whipping it's peeling out it's peeling out and with a car whether it's it's diesel uh, unleaded or electric and you know he was fucking putting the pedal to the metal on that hummer skirt he was zipping um he looked he keep in mind they never let Trump drive those trucks. Not one time. They like let him honk the horn, but they never <laughs> let him actually drive because he's a bitch ass New Yorker. You know, he doesn't drive in Delaware. You don't drive either, drive. Felix. Yeah, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. <laughs> of course, I don't drive. <laughs> Fucking idiot. <laughs> Lived on the Upper West Side my entire life. You're stealing, you're stealing Will Valor right now. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I mean, I can drive a car. It's never too late for me to learn. Is the thing. But it's too late for Donald Trump to learn. And he never... There was only one story I ever heard of him driving a car. And very appropriately, it's about him driving his own limo. Just <laughs> <laughs> really funny thing to do, actually. But, um, you know, Joe, Joe... I think that'll be the last thing for him to go. That's when they have to put him down, is when he can no longer whip. And I think he'll have that for the next decade, probably. Yeah. No, I, I just think, like, uh, it, it's basically the one function of state that i think joe biden is still good at or you know I, I think he should be allowed to do which is drive cars at factory openings yeah yeah no i don't see why not i mean i guess it wasn't a factory opening it's just it's just a new electric hummer which i think is is funny because it's just like oh electric car is good but electric hummers like it's sort of defeating the purpose don't you think yeah i mean they got to give people the idea that that the future can be green and still uh ba- like alpha and cool like that it's not that it's not going to require uh sissification to save the planet. But guess what? They're wrong. Everyone has to take the sissification juice if we're going to save the planet. You want to jump in the back? On the roof. You look good, President. Mary is a pretty good driver. He's a very good driver. <laughs> and the steering radius of this. Yep. Oh, oh, right. Right. How fast did you go? It's incredible. What did you get up to? I don't know. All right, so for today's episode, I've got um, two pretty fire reading series, and I, I think we should just uh, jump into them now. All right, first one comes courtesy of. I think one of the premier thinkers of our time, it's Malcolm Gladwell on uh, his, his new Malcolm Gladwell bulletin. Uh, the uh, article is entitled young leftists should go to the university of Austin. Three lessons from my college years as a political outsider. It's not a fucking school. Yeah. Uh, th- this is coming on the heels of, and I know we had a, we had a good laugh at the university of Austin's expense, but the, the, the article of uh, Malcolm Gladwell um, counseling young leftists to, uh, attend a university that is unaccredited and cannot confer a degree to you comes on the heels of several people uh, initially touted as being associated with the University of Austin, 
uh, heading for the exits. Uh, Steven Pinker, the University of Chicago guy, and some other guy who was actually involved in another university have all uh, dropped out of the University of Tech, Austin, Texas. But Malcolm Gladwell is uh, still on board. So shall, shall, we, shall we take a look at what Gladwell um, has to say here? So it begins, last week, a group of prominent conservative intellectuals, Arthur Brooks, Barry Weiss, Larry Summers, Andrew Sullivan, Steven Pinker, among others, announced that they are starting a new university, the University of Austin. The president of this new enterprise is Pano Canelos, formerly president of the Great Books School, St. John's College in Annapolis. A great books program? I'd like to know more. They have a scholastic book fair there every day. <laughs> the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, all the classics are on the curriculum. Uh, announcing the school's formation, Canelos argued that higher education is now trapped between two equally bankrupt models, a small group of elite schools busily engaged in the reproduction of privilege and a larger group of poor schools fighting to stay afloat. Rich school, poor school, if you will. I got to say, uh, just, just, a, just a sidebar about the University of Austin. It's always a good, it's always a good uh, indication of uh, you know uh, how real the education you're going to supposedly receive at this institution is when they have not raised any of the money yet that it would take to start a university. And it does seem like all of the, I don't know, promotional materials advertising the school are really pitched at investors rather than students. Yeah, I mean, also, like, this is Howard Stern running for governor. He could have yeah, won, though. Is, what? Howard Stern could have won. Yeah, but, like, that's not why he did it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sure Barry could get, like, the money if she really, really wanted to. But I don't know. It's just stunt. This is, no, just stunt after stunt. It is insane to say left, oh, liberal students should go to the school that does not exist, will not exist, basically cannot exist. This is the exact equivalent of saying conservative students should go to Hogwarts. <laughs> and I know I saw, I saw a lot of people, I saw like, you know, that guy Jonathan Haidt or, you know, a, a couple of other sort of hangers on to uh, the, the, the University of Austin and its various luminaries saying like, you know, uh, a lot of people are making fun of this, but, you know, uh, my kids are, you know, like I'm, I would love it if they went to the University of Austin. And it's like, these people are so full of shit because like, the idea that they would ever send their kid to a fucking any college or university that is unaccredited and like, again, what do you get for the four years you spend there? I guess just networking, but you don't get a degree. So I, I mean, I, I find it highly unlikely that anyone, anyone who's touting this would actually send their kids to this fucking hokum rock and roll university instead of, let's be honest, Princeton, Yale or Harvard, where they're all going to go anyway. Or like, you know, if you... Everyone knows by the time their kid is like applying for colleges, whether they've got a, a job kid, you know, a book kid or a party kid, you know, you could just send them to Dartmouth or ASU, depending on your cultural affinities. <laughs> uh, Gladwell continues here. He says reaction to the announcement of the new University of Austin was, as you may expect, in our polarized world, a mixed bag. Lots of liberal types rolled their eyes. Lots of conservatives like Ross Douthat in The New York Times loved it. I'm pretty liberal in most of my thinking, but I have to say I'm all in. First of all, just reread that paragraph from Canelos. He's right. We've been arguing as much on revisionist history for years now. That's Gladwell's podcast, I believe. Uh, given how hopelessly and ridiculously screwed up American higher education is, how can anyone possibly be opposed to an attempt to come up with something new? 
In fact, I'll go further than that. If I were a high school senior looking for a college to go to, my first choice would be the University of Austin in a heartbeat. Yeah, we actually, we have homemade Pepsi, the prom at home. (laughs) I mean, like... My bag must be biracial the way that it's mixed. (laughs) I mean, it's like, that is, that really is, you know, calling it a mixed bag. Because there's like five people whose job it is to pretend this is a real thing, to say things like, oh, if I was, if I wasn't 68 years old, I, I would be applying to go here. Like, that's a possibility. It's it's a fucking it's an Airbnb. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then everyone else just being like, "This is what are you talking like? This isn't anything. This is bullshit." I'm gonna need to know what the party life is like. What sort of the what the Greek life and party scene is like at the University of Austin before I ever you, would ever consider sending a look, kid there? Do they have frats? No. Do they have parties of any kind? No. Do the students have any sort of rapport with one another? No. But if you've ever wanted to play Warhammer 40k for 16 straight days this is the place for you yeah it's even if this was a real place you would have a better probability getting some tune at like one of those nft parties the only bored apes here are your professors <laughs> uh now he says uh so yes i would uh if you know if i were a high school senior my first choice would be university of austin in a heartbeat now why do i say that my ideological leanings are to the left uh, citation, please. <laughs> I'll need some sources on that. I'm literally a communist. <laughs> and the people behind the University of Austin seem to be mostly conservative in orientation. And I don't know for sure that the University of Austin will succeed in being less expensive or less exclusive than our top, than our existing top private colleges. So it seems like a bad fit, right? Why would I go to a school backed by Steven Pinker? P- Steven Pinker. I can't stand Steven Pinker. The answer is because our definition of fit is all wrong. Let me explain. When I was in high school, I was a conservative. I subscribed to the National Review, the intellectual mouthpiece of the American right. I can't exactly remember how I came to that position because I wasn't raised in a politically conservative home. Uh, I I can fill that in for you. He came to that position because it was the most annoying thing possible. And Gladwell has, you know, been making a career out of that for ever since he was a teenager. Um, He goes, Uh, Quite the opposite. By the time I was 16, I was a little right winger. I even named my jade tree William F. Buckley and put a picture of Buckley on the side of the pot and composed a small rap in its honor. With apologies to MC Chris and his immortal Fetz Vet, I'm a sucker jade tree, can't grow much higher. All you other houseplants can call me sire. This is like a um, an order of operations problem for bullies. <laughs> like, what are you going to beat the shit out of him for the first? Like having a jade tree, naming it after William F. Buckley, uh, just sort of tying it into an MC Chris song. That's right, kids. These are the people who are going to be going to University of Austin. Guys like that. I've got the answer about what the social scene is like. Um, then I went to Trinity College at the University of Toronto, put a poster of Ronald Reagan on my wall and discovered that there were no that there was no more than the smallest handful of conservatives at my college. Shout out to Nigel Wright. If you are reading this, I was all but alone in a sea of comfortable 1980s Canadian liberalism. And guess what? It was one of the best things to ever happen to me. That's that's rather grim, Malcolm. I would have said um, interviewing Gucci Mane was probably one of the best things that ever happened to you. Wait, First he interviewed all, Gucci Mane? Yeah, Gucci Mane um, read one of his books, all of his books in prison and became a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan. Well, I mean, it's not like, I guess like, you know, you can probably convert to anything in prison. 
<laughs> they won't let the January 6th rioters read Malcolm Gladwell's books in prison because they're being censored. <laughs> it would suck if that became the biggest prison gang. They're called, like, they're called the outliers. Yeah, the outliers overtake the D.C. blacks and the Aryan Brotherhood in the federal system within five years. Yeah, because they spend 10,000 hours practicing being the best prison gang. <laughs> yeah, your, your initiation is that you have to, like, you have to track, like, smoking cessation to, like, uh, teen pregnancies rising. You have to do Freakonomics on the, on the wall of a cell. <laughs> you, have to, you have to send a kite to someone that's like the big power of thinking small. <laughs> and it's written on an entire roll of toilet paper that you've boofed up your asshole. Is uh, Gucci still in contact with Gladwell? I hope so. Gladwell, I mean, Gladwell is like pretty plugged. I was just thinking like maybe Malcolm Gladwell could, because um, Gucci has like a pretty successful record label now, but like half his roster is in prison. And like maybe he could help. I don't know. Like lawmakers are stupid enough to think like Malcolm Gladwell is cool. Like they all have read his stupid bullshit, and like I don't know. He could get Pusheisty out, maybe. Gladwell, if you're listening, get on this. Um, I also uh, just this thing about being a college conservative and immediately putting up a poster of Ronald Reagan on his dorm room wall just shows that Gladwell. This this was his political orientation was just an annoying affectation he had for he did for attention and to like sort of differentiate himself as like a cool interesting person because if he really had the fire in his belly and the fact that he you know claims to be a liberal now and then was raised in a liberal household just then he and then he named his jade tree after william f buckley and then put up a poster of ronald it just shows me that he's not was never then or now a real conservative. Because if you're a real conservative college student, you don't put up a poster of Ronald Reagan in your fucking bedroom, in your dorm room. You put up a poster of like Charles Atlas lifting weights, sort of like uh, hunky firefighters. Russell Crowe and, Gladiator. Crow and Gladiator. Or just sort of like <laughs> classic Hollywood like uh, starlets of yore. Like, you know, uh, Barbara Stanwyck or Marlena Dietrich. Things of that nature. I mean, like... or. Like, you know, photographs of like shirtless men cradling infants that says, and then like it says father on the bottom or something like that. Like, I, I think that that that's that's how you that, that's what a real campus conservative would decorate their dorm room with. And then Ronald Reagan, that shit's like you, you go to college and you put up you put up a poster that just says rock band on it. Yeah. Yeah. Now that is movie casting college conservative. I mean, now what you would do is you would uh, you would get an amphibian creature who has too many chromosomes. You'd say it's your friend. So it says here, uh, from my time as a conservative outcast, here is what I learned. Number one, you learn more from those whom you disagree with than from those you agree with. This seems to me inarguable. I used to engage in raging debates in my conservative years about Canada's system of national health care. The people I was arguing with were repeating the party line. Their job was easy. I, on the other, was taking a heretical position. Everyone else was waiting to pounce on my every claim. I had to think. I had to learn. And before long, that enforced thinking and learn me, learning made me realize my positions on healthcare were pretty weak. So, I mean, he, now he supports Canada's national healthcare system, which he could have bypassed just by not having this like conservative fad. I mean, well, what, I what did he? What more did he need to learn about it? Well, I think it's normal for like kids, especially like solidly middle class, like college attending kids, to have some sort of annoying affectation, right? I think they like everyone does it. Everyone yeah. in that milieu, yeah. like we, we've all done it. And like oftentimes it can be political, but <laughs> I think what... Did you have a political fad in college, Felix? Mm, I mean, like, you know, I like everyone dabbled in Chuck Baldwin's Constitution Party. <laughs> this was the, the thing to do in 2008. 
2009 or so. It just, I mean, I guess that's what makes Gladwell special, though, is he just like never stopped doing that. He just never stopped having the annoying affectation, even though he's like 60 now. But like, you know, he's, he's like, I eventually came around to the correct position, but only after, uh, you know, having my having having the metal of my spurious conservative beliefs tested enough times by liberal Canadians. I mean, whatever. I, I, I guess I see there's some benefit in that. Uh, number two, college years are a great time to be intellectually uncomfortable. I mean, imagine if I had been a card-carrying, standard-issue Canadian liberal in those years. What exactly would have been the point of going to the University of Toronto? I would have done as well staying home, listening to the reassuring murmur of CBC Radio, and rereading old Robertson Davies novels. The single most exhausting and ridiculous thing about the current discourse around education, on both the left and the right, is the notion that college years represent an all-or-nothing battleground for the hearts and minds of young people. That if you don't win someone over at 18, they are lost to you forever. Is there a single shred of evidence to suggest that this is true? I mean, I think there's like a fair amount of data that suggests that, at least in America, the party of the first president that you vote for is usually the party that you'll stay voting for for the rest of your life. But that's not to say that there aren't outliers there. Right, right. I mean, if he were to make this point the correct way, it would invalidate the need for University of Austin, which is, I think, for like, even if it was like total indoctrination in every fucking university, it like kind of doesn't matter because it's just straight through like people's ears for the most part. Like, even for college kids, even for like that sort of income, the default is not to care about politics. Like that, that is for a select group of Americans, even within the college, people who attend college. But, you know, if you admit that, then it's like, why, why are we why are we making this this ghost kitchen of the university? <laughs> uh, it says here, uh, far from being this high stakes window of intellectual development, college should, in fact, be thought of as the opposite. It ought to be an exhilarating indulgence. It ought to be four lazy, serendipitous, meandering years during which a student has the freedom to dabble and experiment and make massive intellectual errors. I mean, like, he's right that, I mean, like, I mean, that basically is what college is. And it is an indulgence. And it is four of the laziest, most meandering years of your life. But it's just most people do it because, I mean, like, that's the only thing there is to do. And if they get anything out of it at all, it's the fact that they're dabbling and, you know, having sex and uh, having fun for the first time in their lives. You know, I have an idea for how to have a college experience that exposes, that keeps people out of a bubble like that he's so terrified of and exposes them to different ideas. It's called not having it at all, <laughs> abolishing it yeah. completely. Like, of course people need to learn things, specialized skills. And of course they have the desire to pursue inquiry after uh, their secondary schooling. And I think that that should be free and accessible in every city and town in America, but not a fucking campus where you get to do what he's talking about, which is spend four years being perfecting your insufferableness. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like something that would, would bring people together from different backgrounds and get people out of like their comfort zone or bubble in a way that isn't, you know, meandering and. I don't know, maybe imbue some confidence and real life skills would be like, I don't know, instead of like four years of college, like a two year like WPA program that everyone goes to after high school where you just then like people I don't know, would want to work. Yeah, <laughs> no, one, no one wants to work anymore. I, I mean, like the, the, the whole thing with it, like with the obsession over like ideological rigidity at college. I, I mean, we, we talked about this on the episode with Bessner recently. This is another thing of like content versus form. 
the content mm-hmm. isn't really important because like for, for the longest time, how many of those fucking neocons were trots, you know, yeah. all of them, all of them. It, every, everyone is like a fucking radical in college. It's, it's part of the, part of the butterfly blossoming back into the larvae. But, uh, the, the form, the, the form of the thing you're learning of getting people fired, that's the important thing. <laughs> that's the, that's the only thing that sticks. Yes. Yes. Complaining to the manager. That's what you're really learning in college. I mean, I like thinking back on my college experience or just like the college experience broadly of like people I've, I, I've known it, 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 or people who are interested in politics. Now it does seem to me that like speaking for myself, I went into college with, views and attitudes that are a lot closer to the ones I have now than when I was like conditioned with like, what is like the smart thing to think or like, well, how can I make this like more complicated or nuanced or do the reading or whatever folks never do the reading. I, you know, like it, it, going into college, you're like, I was just like, Oh, uh, war is bad and uh, should never be in day. You know, uh, war should be avoided at all costs. All the, almost all the wars America fought. We've been the bad guy. Um, and Bush definitely did 9-11. And then over four years of college, that, that was sort of winnowed out of me just slightly to the point where I remember thinking like, yeah, it was a good thing that the United States intervened in World War One. I. I don't know. I don't know why I came to that position, but it was just like, I was like, oh, this is smart because it's complicated. It's, I was doing the thing Gladwell was talking about, which is like, you know, uh, trying out different, you know, d- different fits, different, different ideological and political fits, but they were all stupid. So again, I mean, form over content. Um, uh, for goodness sake, when I was in my third year of college, I wrote an essay defending McCarthyism. I actually reread it recently. How the fuck does he still have his college essays on file? Oh, God. I mean, this is just... His parents have the world's biggest refrigerator. This is <laughs> insufferability maxing. I mean, I don't know. Like, I haven't fucking thought about school even once since, like, the second I left it. That's what this is for. That's what the University of Austin is for. It's for these Gladwell guys to do, uh, to do back to school. To, to, to do Rodney Dangerfield shit. Like that's why all that's the people who care most about what's happening in our college campuses are the ones who have been out of school the longest, the ones who are closest to, to death and the ones that are therefore most fixated on a fantasizing about a time in their life when they didn't have to piss eight times a night. Because I actually reread it recently. It was totally bonkers. And what happened? Not much, except that one day after dinner, I had a long animated discussion about it with a very brilliant older classmate named Peter Johnson, who has gone on to be a history professor, who very gently and wisely explained to me all the ways I was a lunatic. The after-dinner discussion with Peter Johnson was the education. My crazily contrarian essay on McCarthyism had the wonderful side effect of luring me into a productive discussion with older and wiser peers. Had I written the standard anti-McCarthy version of that argument, then my conversation with Peter Johnson would have been probably been about the Toronto Maple Leafs or the new Rush album. What a waste. I mean, it wouldn't have been a waste because you would have had the correct idea to begin with, which is that, yeah, like it, it is you it is a, you are a lunatic to, to defend Joe McCarthy. The underlying assumption of this article, the thing that propels all of it is me, Malcolm Gladwell, and my contributions to thought and letters are all thanks to the, my choice to go to a college that is different, that was different from my my ideology at the time. The assumption being that there's anything of value f- with his entire life. <laughs> like, oh, look at what happened when I went to this school to challenge my beliefs. Who gives a shit? You shouldn't exist. <laughs> you, your, your books are dog shit. You, you, are, you are pap for idiots. 
<laughs> you you have made yourself very wealthy. Congratulations. But you have contributed nothing to the uh, collective understanding of the human race. You're a fucking waste of space and time. Well, I mean, we talk about a waste of time. It just seems like his whole dabble, his pre-college dabbling in conservative contrarianism was a waste of time because he eventually came around to all the fucking uh, the, the beliefs that he now takes for granted. He is a waste yeah. of time. He is a human waste. He should not exist. Why should we care what his uh, process was of, you know, you, you're wondering how I got to these interesting opinions I have that your fucking uncle reads on the shitter. Who cares? He's literally contributed nothing. And of course, I, I mean, I haven't contributed anything, but my God, at least I don't assume that like any, there's anything to be learned from like my specific uh, intellectual journey as, the, as though the fruits of it are somehow uh, like a value for civilization. Well, as he says here, uh, the whole point of adolescence is that, that at that age, your ideas don't matter yet. Be brave. Try and defend Joe McCarthy to Peter Johnson. I just, I, I, I really hope everyone who attends a four-year university can have a Peter Johnson experience. No, he means literally go to Peter Johnson's house. <laughs> the reason we go to such pains to build dedicated spaces for academic discovery is that we want people to take advantage of that freedom at the one time in their life when making stupid arguments can be done without penalty. What are you talking about? We just, you're, you're a fucking millionaire now because you've made stupid arguments without penalty. It just seems like you're right. Like, it just seems like it just trained him to continue making stupid contrarian arguments for the rest of his fucking life. So in that sense, like he should be a big fan of the university system because it's worked out great for him. Uh, the third lesson. Finally, what you are taught and what you learn are two different things. Again, I would have thought this was perfectly obvious. But for some reason in 2021, this is a radical idea. Who is arguing against this? I mean, this is... <laughs> <laughs> it's like saying, uh, you know, if you don't stop and smell the roses, you'll you'll miss all the pretty flowers or something. I thought this th yeah. this is a controversial statement in 2021. He invented a straw man to like argue against a Snoopy poster. <laughs> he goes here. Um, uh, think about the absurd debate over critical race theory which is powered by the idiotic assumption that if you expose tender young minds to critical race theory, they will come to espouse critical race theory. Critical race theory is to its detractors the ideological equivalent of crack cocaine a theory so addictive so powerful so intimately connected to every dopamine receptor in the brain that even the briefest exposure to it will cause students to forever believe that white people are the devil really why wouldn't it have the opposite effect i've read a fair amount of crt particularly the marvelous work of Derek bell silent covenants his classic is a really good book reading about it made me think about things I'd never thought about before. It made me see the effects of racism in a new light. It made me love Derek Bell. But did it turn me into a CRT disciple? Not really. Mostly because if you read critical race theory, then you realize that, that it isn't a theory like E equals MC squared. It, it's just the attempt... Oh, God, blah, 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 going on here. So it says, skipping to the end here, it just says, so if an 18-year-old Malcolm had been a liberal, I would say he should definitely enroll at a school like the University of Austin. Give his ideas a stress test. Learn how to defend his positions against worthy opponents. But if all the University of Austin does is attract students who already think the way that the professors at the University of Austin think, then I would say the school is a failure. So to all you young conservatives out there, I say, stay away from Austin. Go to Oberlin and spend four years engaged in some very productive squirming and double-taking at the back of the classroom. So there you go. 
That's uh, Malcolm Gladwell's advice to high school grads. Again, Oberlin is an actual university you can go to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. They've got classes. They they issue degrees. There's a there's there's a cafeteria with uh, a bon me that's appropriative or whatever the fuck. There's actually a place you can go. This is literally a P.O. box. <laughs> All right. Uh, Let's have Malcolm Gladwell on colleges. All right. Uh, Next reading series is perhaps one of the more insane things I've read recently. And I I would like to frame this as I I know uh, I'm violating our uh, (laughs) our blackout on any news coming out of the United Kingdom. But uh, this one is good because I would like to sort of um, to frame uh, this reading series as in my opinion, the most British thing ever written. It is, of course, Rachel Johnson, the sister of PM Boris, writing in The Spectator, it's hard not to pity Jelaine Maxwell. We met briefly at Oxford. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, Jelaine, the trial's coming up. Um, what do you guys think? I, I mean, I'm shocked she made it this far. <laughs> I, me too. I, I, I've honestly stopped believing anything anymore because like when she was not dead i was like what and now they're putting her on trial i, I don't fucking know is she a hologram she uh like a clone i have no idea i mean i think my instinct would be that like a, anything conceivably revelatory that could come out of the trial has been well stitched up before then and like d- deals oh, have been made so I'm, I'm not i'm not concerned for her life anymore uh, okay so it says uh this is this is rachel johnson writing in the spectator This week, I'm having puppies. First litter. The Johnsons were not doggy as we always moved around too much. My late mother claims it was 32 times in 17 years. But once you have a dog, life seems boring without. Why did they move 32 times? Like, that's something a clown during the Depression does. (laughs) The fuck? I love every time uh, we would get settled. Uh, suddenly, the townsfolk would start asking questions. And <laughs> <about> the <laughs> posses would start getting formed. And yeah. All of a sudden, we were on to the next town. What was your dad's job? Oh, writing bad checks. <laughs> they were like uh, they were like a family of Judge Holdens. Every town they came to, the <laughs> kids just disappeared, and then they were like on to the next one. I do love the phrase though: "The Johnsons were not doggy." That's a lovely Britishism because there are doggy families and there are non-doggy families. And the Johnsons, they ain't doggy, folks. Well, yeah, because the like um, in the predominant religion of Turkey, Islam, prefer cats. That's true. They were they had to move all those times because people saw them doing the Quran challenge. <laughs> they're a Turkish family. Um, goes here. I have a theory that children give couples something to talk about, and when they go, only a dog can fill the conversational void. The mother or damn, is Ziggy, who entered our lives one week before lockdown after I had a sudden strong urge to get a dog. On March 13th last year, I drove to a farm in Somerset and fell for a puff of white fur with three black dots for a face, which I shelled out a four-figure sum. I'm afraid she is a cockapoo, like every other dog in London, but that's not her fault. Anyway, two months ago, she married Baxter, the scrappy terrier belonging to Mr. and Mrs. James Mates of, Bla- of Bark Place. Uh, remember when I said that this is the most British, or this is the most British essay ever written? I just want to read that sentence again. Speaking of her cockapoo, she says, two months ago, she married Baxter, the scrappy terrier belonging to Mr. and Mrs. James Mates of Bark Place. Sounds normal. That's- I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of cute. I don't see why you don't like it. 
Every time Fiona Mates and I see each other, we shriek, we are a grandmother. I have also ordered the Bible, the book of the bitch, great Jackie Collins energy, and have set my tail to permanent wag as I'm having puppies for Christmas and for life. It's so funny that these people like did the Holocaust every year for like 200 years. (laughs) It's like it's them. (laughs) They're the most evil ones. Another uh, aspect of how British this is, is the name of the people that they're marrying their dog to is Fiona Mates. It's like a Dickensian name where the last name like tells you about their character. Like it's the dog mating family. It's James and Fiona Mates of Bark Place. I mean, this is like a, this is like a story time village. What the fuck? Yeah, it's like if Richard Scary was really scary. By the way, this article is That's about Jelaine Maxwell. Like. <laughs> yeah. Um, since my beloved mother died, I have become an executor. I have this tip-top tip to pass on. When you register a death, the name on the certificate has to be exactly the same as the one used on all important documents for probate to happen. If it isn't, you are in a world of pain as well as grief. Well, I was pretty confident my twice-married mother's name was Charlotte Maria Offlo Johnson Wall. But it turns out... Offset Johnson. (laughs) Charlotte Maria Offlo Johnson Wall. But it turns out Maria was her invention, either because when she became a Roman Catholic or after her second marriage to an American whose middle name was Maria, and she went by around eight variants of her names, both here and in the U.S., where she was Mrs. Wall. (laughs) Okay, yeah, this woman is clearly wanted by Interpol. Yeah, I was going to say, that's why she had so many different names. The fucking old Bill at Scotland Yard was after her. Yeah, this is like what Albert Fish would do. (laughs) I am happy to apply to the General Register Office in Southport for as many of these variants as possible to be added and start all over again. If, there is, if this isn't an argument for women sticking with their maiden names for life and for lunch, I don't know what is. It has been a source of mystery to me, and no doubt many others, that I managed to host a radio show without landing in the soup more often. I'm always saying things like, but are we allowed to say Liverpool Women's Hospital anymore? And... I only want to see someone in a surgical face mask in an operating theater. And if lockdowns work, why are we having uh, why are we having another one? And if lockdowns don't work, why are we having another one? She's in the. I mean, talk about being in the soup. She should be at University of Boston. <laughs> Sounds like a real yeah, she's firecracker of a game. Yeah. Um, but then I realize I am a mere soggy centrist snowflake. Snowflake compared with some. How I long to have the tungsten nerves of Lionel Shriver of this parish who stars in my Difficult Women podcast this week. After discussion with my producer and the execs, we decided not to issue any trigger warnings before dropping the podcast that contains uh, firmly uncompromising views on immigration, cancel culture, trans issues, cultural appropriation, and having children. She is strongly against, as you don't know what you're going to get. You must listen and judge for yourself. Get to the Jelaine no, Maxwell. I'm good. <laughs> right, well, I, I don't think need like to. you. I don't need to listen. You have to like read all of this as code because yes. like I my my thinking on this article isn't literally like oh I'm appealing to the public that they should feel bad for Jelaine Maxwell. It's like it's like a message to her. It's like okay, remember like everything's in place. Like don't fucking talk. And the dog thing, who knows what that is? It's like oh we'll like feed you to dogs. We'll like kill you and feed you to dogs. If you talk or something, maybe should maybe they just like both spend a lot of time uh, reading their mutually favored account. We rate dogs <laughs> and that there's video of them doing this. 
And then the executor of the will thing, that's obvious. The different names thing, that's obvious. Yeah. No, yeah, you're right. I think I think this is like similar to the um Scooter Libby letter to uh Judy Miller about the the roots turning together when the trees change in the fall. Yeah, I think this is a coded message for her to clam up. Yeah. It's like <laughs> they often called my brother the bitch killer because of how many dogs he killed. <laughs> <laughs> how many dogs who barked too loudly at the bark place yeah because like even for a conservative british publication it's like kind of too even they would be like wait like really are we really just like gonna like straight up be like appeal to the normal reader just anyone who sees this like oh i i like feel bad for her um and also the whole thing about how uh the things i say on my podcast will lend me in the soup um, but okay, finally we get to Jelaine. Yeah, they're saying we're going to let you out and you can be on the rebooted Talk Soup with Joel McHale. <laughs> your favorite show. Uh, so here we get to Jelaine. It says, it's hard not to feel a bat squeak of pity for Jelaine Maxwell. 500 days and counting in solitary confinement. Okay, this is saying um, I want to give her a back shot of pity. I intersected briefly with her at Oxford. As a fresher, I wandered into the Baloyal JCR one day in search of its subsidized breakfast granola and Nescafe offering and found a shiny glamazon with naughty eyes holding court astride a table, a high-heeled boot resting on my brother Boris's thigh. She gave me a pitying mm. glance, but I did manage to snag an invite to her party in Headington Hill Hall, even though I wasn't in the same college as her and Boris. I have a memory of her father, Bob, coming out in a toweling robe and telling us all to go home. I'm sure Fairweather friends would not reveal they went to a Jelaine Maxwell party. As Barbara Emile's brilliant memoir, Friends and Enemies, proves, you only know who your real chums are when you're in the gutter. Imagine she's the, she's the sitting prime minister's sister, and imagine she's yeah. just talking about how, like, yeah, Jelaine had, was tonguing his ear at uni. <laughs> yeah. Your brother's in charge of the, of the country, and you're writing an article that's like, yeah, he was hanging out with this child trafficker at Get Headington Hall. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, talk about coded messages, brings up Jelaine's father, Bob, emerging mm -hmm. in a toweling robe. What is it? What does a toweling robe do? I presume it's something that gets you dry. Bob, how did he die? Fell off a boat. Fell, fell off a boat. <laughs> he fell off a boat. Got wet. He got, yeah, he got wetted up for sure. Yeah, he got wetted during work. <laughs> uh... <laughs> And then she says, um, you only know who your real chums are when you're in the gutter. So, again, she's saying to Jelaine, remember who your real chums are now that you're in solitary confinement. I mean, I'm saying this, but I, 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 it's probably unlikely that Jelaine gets copies of The Spectator in solitary confinement. That's but who the knows? only thing they let you read in <laughs> Supermax. <laughs> and then it says here, P.S., everyone wants to know if, one, we are going to keep one, and two, are we going to sell them? Well, Ziggy has cost me eight grand for various reasons so far. All I can say is take a numbered ticket, having arranged a second mortgage, and get in line. Th that's it. That, that's it. Why would she jump from the fuck it, from the college thing to the dog thing? This is this is code. This is fucking code. Yeah, I mean, she jumps right back to the dog thing. Who knows what numbered ticket means? Maybe like your golden ticket out of solitary. Who the fuck knows? But this is like no. This is not as it appears. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is just three paragraphs. Only one of them is about Jelaine. And, like, why don't... 
I mean, I know she's the prime minister's sister, but like, why are they letting this Daffy Broad write just nonsense about <laughs> like what cockapoo she's breeding and how much money she spends? Because on that it? is the number one occupation in the UK. D- columnist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why they did Brexit. Polish people were coming over and writing columns. <laughs> but yeah, we need to have I mean, a also- frank discussion about screen doors of the Trident program. <laughs> uh i mean honestly though like the reason they're like letting her do it like letting such an insane thing run is like i mean Bor- boris has it on lock Who- who's gonna unseat boris Kier? no way this is this is a double function this is primarily a coded message but this is also like dabbing on everyone it's like oh oh uh Oh wow! I, I'll, I, it's going to be awful when labor takes advantage of this. Hmm. This will have no effect. No, and you know, like the whole thing about uh, the current prime minister, prime prime minister <laughs> being uh, Dulali with a noted sex trafficker at uni at heading get Headington Hall. I mean, it's just sort of like I, I know, like the Tories are going through some sort of corruption scandal right now, but it's not going anywhere, and no one gives a shit because corruption yeah. is just the lifeblood of. The economy and in England, I think maybe to their credit, they're just much more like okay with that and open about it. The fact that all of these like Tory backbenchers have other jobs where they're like <laughs> passing legislation that like helps the other the other people they work for rather openly. And I guess with with Boris, it's just like you know he still thinks Jelaine is a right geezer and would like a shag. Yeah, yeah. and uh, apparently right now uh, because of this scandal. Uh, the l- labor is now for the first time since Starmer took over like equal or ahead in the polling, but that will not last. I'll believe like, it when I two weeks it. from now, Kier is going to do a Harlem shake video with CGI Jimmy Savile or something, <laughs> and it'll be right back to where it was. So that's yeah, a- no, I just, he does. Kier does not have it in him. No, he, he really doesn't. He's not meant to. No. Yeah. He's there. To, he was there to kill the club and he did the job. Yeah. Well, there we go. That's a, a a brief violation of our blackout policy on news coming out of the United Kingdom. Oh, the Queen is dead too, though. Oh yeah, yeah. right. Oh yeah, yeah. I, mean, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> so she is one thousand percent dead right now. And they're, gotta be. They're they're rolling. They're rolling. They're going to roll out the death announcement in February. But like, there was a news article yesterday that the Queen will not be seen until February, and she's quote entered a new phase. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to put it. Uh, yeah. Anyone seen the end of Aliens? You know what we're talking about. <laughs> it is interesting, like, why, what they're waiting, what specifically they're waiting for. Is it some sort of, uh, like, ritual deal where, like, the, they have to, like, eat her during a solstice or something? She can't just die randomly. It has to be, like, planned. I don't know. But it does seem weird that they're not just like, yeah, she's dead. Maybe the plan is, like, for, like... That's what they're going to use for Boris to pull it out. Like Boris is going to make a big speech about how much he loves the queen. And he's like, <laughs> oh yeah, fuck labor. <laughs> like when the cards are really down, uh, Boris will he's give a make speech. the best speech ever. <laughs> Boris will give a speech about the many opportunities he's had to share with Queen Elizabeth II and that her minge is absolutely top notch. Um, but yeah, the queen, I, I just think it's like, I don't think England could take the death of their monarch right now. I just think it's 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 they're teetering on the brink here, and when that's I th- true. They're they're fighting each other at at the uh, petrol stations. They they need to at least like get some like emergency fish sticks airdropped in there or something. They they, they need to get their uh, their H and P sauce 
reservoirs strategically refilled before they can handle the death of the queen. Once the once the Germanic pretender leaves, then they can finally give up this uh, this illusion of being a Christian country and go back to pre-Christian paganism. I mean, uh, that's what they want. I mean, yeah. Yeah. the way that they heart the, the way that they all weirdly yearn for the fucking blitz and and having to eat turnips in a fucking bunker. They really want to be sacrificed in front of a fucking a standing stone. That's their actual desire. Do you remember Captain Tom? Who's that? Captain Tom was this like poor old man. He was like an RAF captain during the war. And it was like, he was like, I'm going to do laps around me to raise money for the NHS. <laughs> and like, they basically made him a celebrity so they could like cheer for when he died. It was one of the more perverse things I've ever seen the English do, which is saying a lot. But like, it was clear from the moment that they sort of made him famous, uh, you know, first from articles in the Daily Mail that were like, you know, look at this legendary geezer, <laughs> that it was just it was just a wind up. Like, oh, is it, aren't you going to be sad when this old man that we're having doing laps for the like one good thing about our country that we're destroying? Like, aren't you going to be sad then? And that is something that like a pre-Christian tribe would do. They'd be like, this is the oldest man in our village, and we're going to have him walk around a rock forever as penance <laughs> for what we did during our gathering period. Love Boris. Love Brexit. Love a brown meal. Love to have my throat slit over a runestone. Simple as. <laughs> yeah, I don't... If they just become the land beyond the wall, uh, yeah. no huge loss, really. I think it's That's fine. what they want. They want to do yeah. it. They want we'll to all be craster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every, every, every fucking British person watched that that season of Gambo and was like, "Goals." When the, that's what they meant when when a British person is like, "Oh, Game of Thrones is interesting because it's like the good guys almost never win." They're talking about Craster. <laughs> They're like, "He was the best character. He was the he was doing the greatest good in the world, and they killed him because they were jealous." Yeah, they were jealous of his swag. <laughs> he was swag. He got all the wet ham he wanted. He got pussy. Yeah, he lived in a great house, I wonderful s- house. I think <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't. He he had his birds slash daughters in line. Yeah, his neighbors were uh, frost zombies and not Polish people. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I think the new phase thing. I think they're I think they're gonna roll out. Roll out Queen Phase Phase Two in February, and I think this is like their last ditch effort to keep the United Kingdom together. Because if she emerges from her new phase and doesn't see her shadow, then Scotland and Wales are heading for the fucking exit. So they just got to yeah. make sure she sees her shadow when she emerges from the Queen Cave, the Phase Cave, the Phase Clan. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth is joining. The Queen phase. is actually joining Phase Clan. She's that's joining that's phase the announcement clan. in yeah. February. I yeah. I think like maybe it's a possibility. Like nothing, nothing really that definitive or fun really seems to happen anymore. Like everything just goes on forever. Like I'm pretty sure we're going to be doing the Rittenhouse trial for the next fifty years. Yeah, just that's just a yearly thing that we'll do. But um, I do want to see what it would be like if the if they made um, the U the England proper as like Constantinople, like just everything secedes except for London, like just city, the city of London, London yeah. part of London. That would be cool, and that's just England. Money laundering machine goes burr. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that is really the only real engine of their economy now anyway is the city of London just laundering money and real estate shit. They, they, they should stop bothering the rest of the fucking islands and let them just, like, do their own deal. Yeah, independent Northumbria, independent Wales, independent Scotland. 
Cornwall just saws itself off of the rest of the island. Yeah, let's see what Surrey can do on their own. I bet a lot. Yeah, let's vibe. Just figure, I mean, it doesn't seem like it could get much worse. (laughs) It doesn't seem like they have any real investment in the bit, that's for sure. Like, nobody seems to really, even like even the English people, like, the thing that they really want is just, yeah, just England. Everything else is just a pain in the ass to deal with. Who are those, uh, the guys, you remember in the Beyond the Wall, uh, who are the blue guys? The, the picks. The picks. Yeah. I mean, are you talking in real life or in Game of Thrones? Cause, well, in, in Game of Thrones, the picks. No, no, in, in real guys. life, it was the picks. They lived at the top of Scotland, and they painted themselves blue. And even the Romans didn't fuck with them, because that's how crazy they were. Oh. Uh, okay, they're coming back then. Yep. They're getting their own country. Sorry, I'm just thinking for a second about Queen Elizabeth joining FaZe Clan and doing like a mom's basement style interview where like FaZe Banks is like, yo, bro, a lot of people think it's like not cool to hate your children, but my parents fucking hate me. And dog, yo, I I think you're just so fucking real because you don't like your kids. (laughs) Yo, everyone's had someone they're close to. It may be a family member. It may even be your son who went on TV and didn't do a good job. <laughs> I I was I was laughing about the idea that like she went to the, like the whole reason for this and the reason she's dying is she went to the, the Dominican Republic like on her own on a commercial flight to get a BBL. <laughs> <laughs> they were like we can just we can have someone do it here like what the fuck like why and she's like no it's fine I just want to do it this way and it's like leaking and killing her. It's like a- she says this huge ass that you see from the front. Her skeleton can't even hold it up anymore. <laughs> Her spine is shaped like an ampersand, just trying to hold up that ass. <laughs> well, uh, I think that about uh, does it for today's episode, but I would be uh, remiss in letting the episode pass without um, uh, at, at least mentioning a, the rather very, very sad thing that happened yesterday. Not Queen Elizabeth dying, but uh, young Dolph being killed in Memphis. I just uh, he, He's an artist that has been one of my favorites for a long time, and I was uh, uh, really re- greatly heartbroken to hear him about him getting murdered in his home city of Memphis yesterday. And I just I would like to say, just share, do you guys remember our first live show in the Everybody Hits in Philadelphia? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was like nervous as fuck, and we were driving over there in Brett and Brian's car, and the song we were listening to was Cut It by young Dolph and uh, you know that price is way too high you need to cut it went, yeah no. and I was feeling I was feeling mad nervous about the show but it was when Dolph said went and bought a 9-11 with my trap money like I don't know it just did it, it, it put me in the right mindset and Dolph like I mean I'll, I'll miss you man like he was a he was a great artist and just even in like my mentions yesterday people were coming through with some fairly amazing stories about what a cool guy he was including one dude who said he worked as like a he worked at a like a recording studio just as like a cleanup guy. And he said Dolph came in to record. And as he was leaving, he was just like, he's just said, damn, that smells like some fire ass weed you're smoking. And Dolph just gave him like his whole sack, like seven grams. and was just like, here, have it. There were so many stories like that about Dolph that I saw. And so many videos, like there was this um, football team in, in Memphis who their their song that would get them amped up was 100 shots which was another huge Dolph song it was the song he 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 wrote and performed after uh he was people shot at his bulletproof SUV 100 times and he didn't get hit um he heard that they loved that song and that's what they used to get amped up and they won a big game they won like a conference game and he came he came to their locker room after they won and like turned up with them like there are so many videos of him just like he he seemed to like genuinely love and appreciate all all of his fans, all of his listeners. Um, he was known in Memphis for helping people out. 
Um, he, uh, his, he was a completely independent artist. Um, he, he was his own economy. Like I would say like easily a hundred people were kind of relying on him as this linchpin of an independent music economy, which is really fucking hard to do. It's just, it's an incredibly sad thing to do because this was a guy who beat every odd and did everything right. And it's just a fucking awful way for it to end. Honestly, like I'm just one of the things that I thought was so special about him or that I loved and respected the most is his commitment to staying independent. And, you know, like all he talked about, like just if you if you have money, spend it to promote and produce your own stuff so that you can reap all the rewards of like being in control of it and just like being your own artist, like being your own fucking, yeah, your own economy, your own industry instead of relying on, you know, these middlemen like record labels or promoters and shit like that. And uh, it, it's a very sad loss. There was that other story about like those two kids at Duke University who worked at the Starbucks yeah. who were fired for playing Get Paid over the Starbucks <laughs> speakers. And he flew them out to the Rolling Loud, brought them on stage and gave them 20 grand in cash each. An, an amazing fucking guy. I mean, he and was like just he's one of my like absolute favorite contemporary artists. So I just uh, I wanted to mention at the end of the show, uh, just uh, love and respect to his memory and condolences to his friends and family, because I'm really going to miss uh, his music. Yeah. And um, we're going to put this link in the description. Dolph's family actually operates a uh, an organization in Memphis that helps with victims of domestic violence with uh, kids in impoverishment neighborhoods with a lot of things. And it isn't just like, it's not a, like there are a lot of bullshit celebrity charities out there that are like tax shelters. And this is not one like people spoke highly of this. So we'll, we'll put that in there. If you, if you loved Dolph, like we did and you want to honor his legacy, this is at least something you can do. All right. Well, uh, to end on a sad note, but I mean, just, uh, I, I will, I will, I will definitely keep his music with me for the rest of my life. Um, it's just, uh, it's just one of those things. It's, it's incredibly heartbreaking and senseless, uh, to have something like this happen. But I mean, you know, he was a legend and I think his music will, will stand the test of time. Absolutely. All right, guys. Till next time. Bye bye. Till next time. Upon a time with a little nigga from South Memphis. Oh, uh, I think they call him Dolph. Dolph. About 2009, a little nigga started rapping, but he said he gonna be his own boss. Yo. 2010, he dropped his first real mixtape. Welcome to Dolph World, and he took off. Go. Wait, pause, let me slow down a second. Ask Lil Wook, I came in the game reckless. Ask the fuck niggas, I came in the game flexing. <laughs> yeah, he came in the game flexing. <laughs> I remember 2011, Major Label came at me and they tried to give me two mil. Wait a I gave him a handshake, looked him in his eye and said, nah, but I'll talk to you in two years. Ask every bad bitch in Memphis, they gon' tell you that he smoked the best weed. And he got this sack. Them little nigga can't pull up like me. With a hundred niggas and a hundred racks. The streets ain't never seen no shit like it. My first show ever made him give me 5,000. Right there in my city and I threw it in the crowd. Been turned up ever since.